did I get the job? Absolutely not. Why not? Because you're a baby boomer and I'm a millennial. Most Gen Xers are in school during the crash. So at first they think like, so what? I am a Gen Xer. But I came to find out that actually the term Generation X, it has no meaning. How is eating meat racist? I'll gladly tell you. Looks like we've got an oppressor on our hands. Millennials in Generation Z have the Peter Pan syndrome. They don't ever want to grow up. Maybe they lost why you didn't do anything while there still was time to act. You say you love your children above all else, and yet you're stealing their future in front of their very eyes. You're going to mature and you're going to realize nothing's free, that things aren't equal, and that your utopian society you created in your mind in your youth simply is not sustainable. Okay, Boomer, listen up. Generational conflict is back. Boomers have stolen millennials' future. They've used up scarce resources while voting for austerity. For their part, millennials are self-absorbed avocado scoffers who rather complain than work and save. Where once the young rebels of the 1960s stuck it to the man, and by extension their parents' generation, today it's the turn of the young to challenge that very same 60s generation, now grown old, retired, and complacent. It's they who mortgaged our future. Didn't they? This is the growing narrative of generationalism, the belief that all members of a given generation possess characteristics specific to that generation, which make it inferior or superior to another. Our turbulent times at the end of the end of history are generating new cleavages and conflicts, and the Generation War is one of the most prominent across the West. Welcome to OK Boonger, The Problem of Generations, a special five-part series by Aufhe Bunga Bunga, the global politics podcast at the end of the end of history. As you're probably aware, a whole popular literature has emerged blaming baby boomers for our situation. Hey, yo. Hey, yeah. This one goes out to all the 65-plus crowd on SoundCloud. Not gonna say much. Shout out Jed Will, he gonna take over on the mic. Old ladies suck. Okay, boomer, 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 okay. Here are just some titles. What did the baby boomers ever do for us? A generation of sociopaths. How the baby boomers betrayed America. Boomers, the men and women who promised freedom and delivered disaster. The age of entitlement. America since the 60s. When the boomers fail, how demographics will sort communities into winners and losers. The theft of a decade, how the baby boomers stole the millennials' economic future. The pinch, how the baby boomers took their children's future and why they should give it back. And, okay boomer, let's talk, how my generation got left behind. The phrase okay boomer even made it into a parliamentary debate in New Zealand. In the year 2050, I will be 56 years old. Yet, right now, the average age of this 52nd parliament is 49 years old. Okay, Boomer. Uh, current political institution. In turn, there's a whole literature alternately fawning over, blaming, or pitying millennials. iGen, why today's super-connected kids are growing up less rebellious, more tolerant, less happy, and completely unprepared for adulthood, 
and what that means for the rest of us. Generation Me, why today's young Americans are more confident, assertive, entitled, and more miserable than ever before. The Gaslighting of the Millennial Generation, how to succeed in a society that blames you for everything gone wrong. Kids These Days, Human Capital and the Making of Millennials. Can't Even, How Millennials Became the Burnout Generation. Young, Broke and Educated, A Discussion of Millennials, Finance, Economics and Poverty. Millennials, the so-called Entitled Generation. The War on Millennials, Airing Grievances and Offering Solutions Through the Eyes of America's Next Generation of Leaders. The AOC Generation, How Millennials Are Seizing Power and Rewriting the Rules of American Politics. And How Not to Become a Millennial. Learning from America's Largest Sociological Disaster. Not to be forgotten, Generation X, a generation squished between boomers and millennials, have something to say for themselves too. Of course there's Generation X, Tales for an Accelerated Culture, but also, the silent revolution of Generation X, Zero Hour for Gen X, How the Last Adult Generation Can Save America from Millennials, X Saves the World, How Generation X Got the Shaft But Can Still Keep Everything from Sucking, and Passed Over and Pissed Off, The Overlooked Leadership Talents of Generation X. And of course, the very young are a problem unto themselves, but they haven't done much yet, so they only merit a placeholder name, Generation Z, in titles such as Generation Z Unfiltered, facing nine hidden challenges of the most anxious population, Generation We, the power and promise of Gen Z, Gen Z, the superhero generation, Generation Z, the zombie generation, okay Gen Z, the true generation, meet Generation Z, understanding and reaching the new post-Christian world, Generation Brave, the Gen Z kids who are changing the world, yeah this one has Greta on the cover, and Hollowed Out, a warning about America's next generation. What's behind this upswell in generational thinking? Millennials are regularly cast as entitled and self-indulgent. But these are the exact terms by which boomers were criticized by the existing adult leadership of society in the 1960s. And yes, earlier generations might have had access to lower house prices and university fees, but does that mean all boomers became university-educated homeowners? Hardly. And on the other hand, millennials do indeed face real difficulties. They entered the workforce just as steady, long-term job contracts were evaporating. But they're evaporating for everyone. What leads people to feel themselves part of their generation? Why do people come to see society in generational terms at some points in history, and not in others? In this series, we aim to explore how the concept of youth and of generations emerged in the 19th and early 20th centuries, before turning to examine, in order, baby boomers, born 1945 to 1964, Generation X, born 1965 to 1980, and finally, millennials, born 1981 to 1996, not forgetting, of course, Gen Z, born 1997 onwards. An examination of this historical trajectory suggests four separate insights. Here are the first three of these. One, history can be told through the story of various generations' life course, as, for example, the boomers went from being hippie students denouncing the war in Vietnam, 
to urging on quote-unquote humanitarian bombing raids on poor countries in the 1990s. 2. Generational consciousness emerges at different points in time, without any predetermined regularity. This consciousness is the product of certain formative experiences. 3. Generations are not just passive. They're defined by more than just their consumption patterns or what they went through as kids and young adults. They can also be defined by what they do by their political agency. What picture emerges when we compare generations across a longer history? Comparing contemporary Russia to French 68 and Weimar youth, is this role of um, the foundational experience of a particular generation. So in Weimar youth, that experience of the First World War, the contradictory experiences of how one lived through the First World War and what that has left as an imprint on young people's own identity kind of 20 years on. Felix Kravacek, a political scientist at the Center for East European and International Studies, who researches the role of youth in politics. In France 68, it's kind of similar. We've got a really incredibly important foundational experience for these young people being the Second World War and then 20 years later, how do you position yourself towards that historical experience that was you know, where your parents were involved, where your father was most likely to be at the front and your mom was at home also involved in one way or another in the war effort. Similar again, of course, in, in Germany and in, in the Weimar Republic with this kind of, okay, how did my parents go through that? So it's a foundational experience a generation later, more or less, 20 years after that, the end of that event, how do you position yourself to that, which is an element of negotiating your own biography in your family? So how, what, who am I? Am I a son of a collaborator family in France, or were my parents involved in heroically fighting the resistance and for the true French spirit? That's a really important question if you're in your 20s and you want to know who you are. But what I found interesting to add to that, and that's been drawing kind of from working on the Russian case, is that the perspective backwards to the past event really only has meaning if it's combined with a perspective to the future, kind of where do we want to go as a generation? And in the Russian case, that was really staggering in the speeches that were addressed to young people linking the Second World War to, you know, what we want to be as Russia in 20, 30 years time. And it's your role now as young people to make that Russia become a reality. And actually a similar dynamic exists in the Weimar Republic and French 68 about discussions about the future. What do we want to be as Weimar? Where do we want to go as France? And what I find really interesting in the Weimarian case, for instance, is that these debates about the future of the Weimar Republic were just so fragmented and youth was so polarized in the different camps and so heavily ingrained in these partisan struggles that young people's political involvement in a way made a contribution to the fragility of the Weimar Republic and kind of to make this palpable. There were youth movements who fought very energetically for the Republic, for this kind of the idea of democracy and free elections and voice to the parliament and so on and so forth. But at the same time, young people were equally involved in kind of the early fascist national socialist movements and the communists. And then there was also quite an important part of young people who were involved in the church. And in these four fractions, they also all had very different and competing ideas about where the country should be going to. And they link that back to their experience or their interpretation of what they've learned from the First World War. In the Weimar case, what is, I think, important there to understand the regime breakdown is that these fractions of young people, in a way, they were endorsed by adult civil society, by adult political engagement. So they all had kind of adult allies 
And therefore the struggle of youth was no longer only a struggle of youth, but became part of kind of the general political confrontations in the country. Um, and then of course we know how the story ends, which fraction had the most influence. And that was different in France, 68. And that's I think where the comparison is quite illuminating because in France, the struggle of youth was always contained up to a certain point, but was seen as a youth problem. It's kind of a, you know, adolescence issue of, it's a problem with the university. The university system isn't adequate enough. And yes, there were of course moments of solidarity with the workers. Obviously there were huge marches where workers joined students, but these were more kind of occasional, even though they were really important and the general strike was large, but that could not have that kind of broader momentum that, we, that we've seen in the Weimar Republic. So in France, eventually kind of the success was limited also of 68, I think, because that generation was seen as speaking for a generation rather than for society overall. And that's quite different to what we've seen in Weimar, where, yes, the young generation had a particular view because of their socialization experiences and kind of views on the future. But at the same time, they were not seen as being particularly speaking only for youth, which is, I think, a really important difference and an interesting factor in understanding how young people's activism is positioned in society, where that can be dismissed as, you know, well, it's a problem of the new generation. They just need to learn and be accustomed to our rules and then it will all be fine versus gosh, this isn't just a problem of youth. This is our society that is facing certain problems and that we need to address. Kravatsak said at the end there is important, about seeing things in generational terms versus seeing them as social problems. And it brings us to our fourth and final hypothesis to be explored in this series. Generationalism, the perceiving of social problems through the lens of generational conflict, is often problematic, for it might obscure other, more fundamental divisions and social forces, such as class. Thinking in terms of generations might have some worth when applied to questions of values, Values are transmitted through society, through cultural reproduction. That is, 
especially through the institutions of the family and education. A generation can come to see itself as different from that which preceded it, because it comes to hold values that conflict with those of its parents, for example. But does it make sense to think in generational terms when discussing material questions of interests, wealth, production, ownership, and so on? Before we get there, let's begin at the beginning, with a bit of theory. At a basic level, what is a generation? We might take the idea for granted, but when we examine it a bit more deeply, it seems awfully slippery. After all, we can barely agree on whether millennials are young 20-something girls dancing on TikTok, or if they're 40-something dad bod dads in front of a barbecue. So to set us up on the right path, we spoke to Jenny Bristow, a sociologist at Canterbury Christchurch University, and the author of a number of books on generations, including Baby Boomers and Generational Conflict, and most recently, The Corona Generation, co-written with her teenage daughter. We start with the most fundamental of questions. Are generations biological or social? It's both. And uh, the interesting thing about generations for social scientists is that it really does compel looking at both sides of that question. My work on generations began actually through my work on parenting culture. And it would be absurd to say that generations don't mean anything in the family, kinship, natural, biological sense. Um, and that's also very important in terms of thinking about processes of generational transmission, because it's the fact that you've got new people coming into the world all the time that kind of gives this sense of dynamism and ongoing continuity and change and sometimes friction. But I'm a sociologist, um, generation isn't just a natural phenomenon. It is also something that we give meaning to as a society. And also that people coming into the society, the new participants in our world, also bring their own new meaning to society. So I think as a concept, it is quite a tricky one to work with. It's, it's quite broad. It is used in different disciplines, has different meanings. People disagree about it. But I think there is something quite uh, important about this concept as a way of situating the relationship between the natural and the social, and also situating the, the relationship of the individual to history and the making of history and the process of meaning making. That being the case, the question then becomes, at what point in history did generations emerge? Well, some would say that it goes back to the ancient Greeks, and certainly there is a, a discussion about um, generations you know, in the ancient world. You also see it in the Bible, you see it in Shakespeare. It's not a new concept in that sense. Where it starts to achieve more sociological significance really comes about with the process of industrialization. Industrialization brings a new sense of time emerging, where you have uh, a tension emerging between family time, the kind of natural cycles of life, um, and the ways that people kind of live and reproduce themselves in quite distinct kind of communities, with this sort of different sense of social time, and um, a real kind of break from that, that sense of people living in particular kind of closed communities, and having a more kind of uh, universal um, aspiration to participate in society. And something that, you know, with industrialization, it breaks that sort of naturally defined sense of who you are in society. You know, you, you kind of have young people emerging, but they become the products of society and they start engaging with society as themselves, as opposed to just as fathers and sons and, you know, within their particular groups. 
as the radical Austrian psychoanalyst Wilhelm Reich explained. The character structures, which correspond to a certain historical situation, are formed in early childhood and are much more conservative than the forces of technical production. It follows that, as time goes on, the psychological structures lag behind the development of the social conditions from which they stemmed and which progress rapidly. Therefore, they come into conflict with the later forms of living. This is the fundamental essence of so-called tradition, that is, the conflict between the old and the new social situation. Reich's positing of a lag between psychological structures that are products of upbringing and accelerating social conditions is worth pondering in light of another related question. What social forces generate social cleavages, specifically generational cleavages? Well, this is something that is kind of quite contested and it, it, it does really depend what theory of generations you um, adopt. So there's various approaches, even within social science. I mean, some people talk about cohorts, which is where you, you would look at a society and sort of slice it up, looking at that kind of group of people born at a particular time. I think that's fine, but I don't think that actually pertains to generations. The approach that I tend to use is inspired by the work of Karl Mannheim, the Hungarian sociologist who wrote very famously in the 1920s about the problem of generations. And what he said was that uh, what gives rise to a generation is a shift in the wider social forces. And he talked particularly about the, the sort of accelerated tempo of, of social change. When something happens, like a war, you could say, certain moments over the 20th century, uh, I've, I've applied this kind of understanding to, for example, this discussion about the 60s. And then arguably you can say the, the current experience we're having of the pandemic um, has really got that potential where suddenly you, know, you get a shift from kind of the present to the future. It's, it's like a jump. And what you see is not the world changing overnight, but the acceleration of a lot of trends that have been going on for a while, which really come to the fore. And it, it creates a different kind of sense of reality, I think, between those who've made themselves, they've achieved their sense of self, their sense of consciousness, in the world before, if you like, and then those who are coming into a new world. And that's how you get potentially a kind of a clash between generations, a different kind of generational consciousness. So the sequence from one generation to the next isn't an automatic cyclical process, but is instead caused by certain formative experiences or traumatic historical events. I mean, there are generation theorists who, who see kind of generational change very much in a, a cyclical way, something that's almost like predestined and that follows this sort of natural rhythm of things. Um, and to me, that's not satisfactory because I think we are social beings as well as natural ones. And when we're looking at generational change, often what we're really looking at is history, you know, but we're looking at the people who are part of that history at the time that they're living it. By consequence, it would seem some generations are more of a generation than others, which is to say, some generations have more self-consciousness of themselves as a generation than others do. So Mannheim said that it was these kind of wider social events that gave rise to a generation, a sort of a sense of a generation. But that doesn't necessarily correlate to 
what people think when they look back and they look back at the 60s generation, for example, or the First World War generation. Because within those moments, obviously, the, the people who develop their formative experiences work them up in different ways. You know, my, my favourite example is actually, if you look at the baby boomer generation, the, the 60s generation, you know, you had uh, Bill Clinton and George Bush on very different ends of the kind of political spectrum, um, seen to represent very different things. But they were part of the same generation in terms of time. And Mannheim's argument was that what happens is that when you have a lot of tension going on in particular historical moments, it gives rise to what he termed generation units. And the generation units, so these distinct groups within a generation that seem then to kind of embody the spirit of that time. And the generation unit that becomes dominant is the one that most chimes with the zeitgeist. In the spirit of the age. So that's why if we think about the First World War generation, for example, we think about the poets, you know, Wilfred Owen and Sigrid Sassoon, they really kind of represented that dis- disenchantment with the old order uh, that came to be you know, more widely shared as history developed. But they didn't necessarily represent the experience of everybody born at that time or the way that everybody thought about it. So it's complicated. It's also an interaction, not between, not just between young people and the time that they're living in, but then between the future and the past, you know, in terms of how we then come to look back on the world that we've created. These generation units that come to stand for a generation as a whole often have their experience given voice to by intellectuals. Intellectuals that aren't always part of the generation in question. What's quite interesting is that they're all rather old when you, when you, when you look back at uh, some of the, the kind of intellectuals associated with, say, the 60s. You know, you had, for example, uh, Mark Hooser, you know, who wasn't a young man, but his sort of view of the world really came to sort of chime with that, mo- that idea of the 60s. And that seemed to be a, a sort of an inspiration. There's an inter- interesting discussion that the historian... Arthur Marwick has about the 1930s and the uh, the attraction of people like T.S. Eliot and the modernists for youth at that time, because youth at that time was really kind of disenchanted and you know, quite cynical um, about the future. And, and those kind of intellectual aspirations kind of became their, their muse. In my work on, I mean, thinking more recently about the millennials, I'm always very struck by the the people claiming to be the voice of youth, the voice of millennials, are usually quite a lot older than the millennials themselves, you know. So it it is one of those things where it's not, I mean, I don't like to use the word authentic because what we are dealing with here is to a, a large degree like construction, interpretation, and, you know, something that's much bigger than just young people themselves. But I think it is very interesting to see this interplay between particular intellectual currents and then how that becomes taken on board, if you like, by people coming of age at that time. Who's the voice of the millennial generation? Is it uh, novelist Sally Rooney or Lena Dunham? (laughs) We'll come back to this question in the fifth and final episode of this series. 
For now though, we should just note that the idea of a neat, almost automatic succession of generations is a myth. And yet some still hold to this school of thought, to the so-called pulse rate hypothesis, where a society's entire population can be divided into a series of non-overlapping cohorts, each with its own unique personality. This view has been popularized by the authors William Strauss and Neil Howe. It's also been called the fourth turning theory, espoused by such luminaries as Steve Bannon to supposedly predict the future, one in which his brand of politics is due to triumph, of course. One man was dissatisfied with this sort of schema, so he came up with his own, possibly even more absurd schema. Joshua Glenn is a semiotician and author, and the publisher of the site High Lowbrow, which set out to categorize generations in even more fine-grained form. These are short 10-year periods running from, say, those born 1964 to 1973. Whether the schema makes any sense or not, what's presented on High Lowbrow allows us to at least conceptualize waves of artistic movements, at least insofar as this refers to pop culture and generations. We asked Joshua why he decided to look at generations in this way. Back in 1992, when I was starting graduate school in sociology here at Boston University, a program I, I dropped out of, by the way, but while I was br briefly in the program, I, wanted, I became really interested in the idea of generationism. And Neil Howe and William Strauss's book, Generations, which was a huge bestseller, uh, in the U.S. and maybe around the world, I don't know, but it was a massive bestseller. Al Gore gave it to every member of Congress. It was a big deal. It's quoted all the time still to this day when, when journalists want to talk about generations, they reach for that book. That had come out, I think, in 91, the year before. So it was a big deal. There was a lot of discussion about it. Um, people were very interested in this kind of arcane, you know, cyclical vision of history that these two pop sociologists advanced. Neither of them were sociologists. They were public policy wonks and kind of journalists. And they just kind of invented, reinvented themselves as, as generation experts and wrote this book. And it turned in, it became such a big hit that they then started a um, consulting business to help people market things to, to millennials and so forth. So it's all, I'm kind of cynical about their whole project, but the way they broke on the generations just didn't make any sense to me. It was neither strictly calendrical, nor was it strictly kind of, um, you know, every 20 years or anything like that. It was just kind of, they cobbled it together to kind of fit this, this pre-existing idea they had about how there was a big cycle of generations and you have a, you know, you have an idealistic generation followed by a cynical generation and so forth and so on. And uh, I was vaguely aware by reading from reading zines back in those days that people slightly older than me, so I'm born in 1967. So people who were a little bit older than me who were uh, being described as boomers. So these guys said that the boomers were from 1943 to 1960. So people who I, whose zines I admired who were born in 1958, let's say, didn't feel like boomers because you know they had nothing to do with any of the boomer stuff. Like when Woodstock happened, you know what I mean? They were 10 years old. Um, they That generation really felt like they came along late for the party and everybody, you know, the boomers got all this attention on them. And then these guys still got called boomers, but they weren't boomers at all. So there's a whole cohort of, I'd say, but I, I call them the, OG, the OGXs, the original generation X. And they were born from 1954 to 1963, according to my, my periodization. And they were kind of um, upset and angry with their kind of older brothers and sisters or their older cousins, the boomers, for kind of taking all this space up in the culture and being saddled with that, you know, they get shoved into this generation that they really feel no connection to. 
Um, so their kind of generational consciousness, if you will, inspired me. And then when the media started writing about Generation X, which according to these guys, uh, how and Strauss, they called it the 13th generation, was 1961 to 1981. And you'll see a lot of different periodizations for what Generation X was, but it's around 1961 to 1981. And that didn't feel right to me either. The, that felt like there were some people in there who were from an older generation, there was me, and then there was people from a younger generation. It was just too big. So around um, 1992, when I started my zine Hermanot, um, the first several issues I, I wrote about generationism, which was something that they wouldn't let me do it in graduate school, the sociology program. They said it wasn't really sociology, it was a fake pseudoscience. So I dropped out of that program and I was working on other things in my life and I started publishing this zine. And one of the things I was interested in was exploring generations. But then it wasn't until I was working at the Boston Globe in 2008 that I started, kind of, kind of got interested in again because I was reading I was reading the newspaper every day because I worked at the newspaper and I was constantly seeing references to generations. And around that time, um, Obama was claiming that he didn't feel like he was a boomer. He was he's somebody else who was born in that kind of what I call the OGX generation, the original generation Xers. And so he was because he was so prominent, people actually listened to him for the first time. And they're like, oh, maybe there isn't a maybe there is two generations there instead of one. So that be I began to see like a little bit of a fissure in the, in the monolithic theory of how and Strauss and the way it was being received by journalists. So what actually constitutes a generation then? So I think, first of all, that there's probably no such thing as generations. I, I kind of agree with the sociologists who, who didn't let me write about generations when I was in grad school. It is kind of an artificial construct. You know, if, if I can make one up, you can make one up. On the other hand, there are generations. There are kind of movements that happen and everybody in that movement was born within the same sort of 10 years of each other, right? jazz and, and modernism and art and punk and alt-rock, you know, the early social sciences. Everybody was born within like 10 years of each other. So I do feel like there are certainly these kind of social, what, what um, William S. Cho called um, social generations, if not kind of strictly calendrical generations. So it's kind of a necessary illusions or something. It, it, you can't really put your finger on it. It's not a science. And yet we all know that it's real. It's a thing. And, uh, I guess I got interested in the idea that, um, you know, if you can't, if you can't say exactly what a generation is, if you can't really get scientific about it, and I, you know, you're always going to argue with somebody else's generational scheme, then maybe the thing to do would be to be kind of absurdist about it and just decide on a very, very strict scheme that these generations run along. So that's kind of what I was doing when I was at the Globe in 2008. I started just looking up, you know, the birth dates of all these people who had been in different kind of artistic and intellectual movements or musical movements, whatever it was, and um, kind of thinking about the patterns that I was seeing. And what I was seeing was that it felt like a lot of these social generations tended to be born in a, a year that ended with the four through a year that ended with the following year that ended with a three. So these 10 year stretches from like a, 1884 to a 1993 or a 1904 to a 1913. So it's a, it's a made up absurdist idea that I had. And yet I kept finding evidence for it. It felt kind of true to me. And I convinced myself at least that I just kind of ran with it. And I just um, decided, you know, I'm going to put out my own version of this generational schema and um, see, you know, see how it works. And, you know, it, except for a few, you know, stray folks who are like a little bit older, like William S. Burroughs is a little bit older than the rest of the B generation or whatever. Um, it pretty much always works. 
So, which either shows you that there really is no such thing as generations or that, I, or that I'm onto something. Even if Joshua Glenn accepts that there's a certain absurdism to his rigid schema, surely there's some material basis for the shift between one generation and the next. To answer one of your questions I didn't answer before, I do think there's kind of pressures, like tectonic pressures that form generations. So social change and cultural shifts and um, historical events, you know, uh, economics, demographics, how many of you are in the generation, like the boomers were a huge generation and the culture kind of warped around them to accommodate them and give them everything that they wanted and make them happy and, you know, entertain them. And it's, it's still going on, right? As they get older, aging is changing in America. And as they begin to die, dying is going to change in America. So, you know, demographics certainly play some kind of role in it. In our next episode, we'll learn how youth, as a social and even political category, emerged in the period following the French Revolution. We'll trace how accelerating social change and historical ruptures gave birth to generational cleavages in consciousness across the 19th and early 20th centuries. Thanks for listening to OK Boonger, The Problem of Generations. This series is produced by Philip Cunliffe, George Hoare, and Alex Hochuli. Original music is by Johnny Mundy. This episode's guests have been, in order of appearance, Felix Kravatsek, Jenny Bristow, and Joshua Glenn. And the narrator is myself, Alex Hochili. For access to all Alpha Bunga Bunga content, including bonus content, original subscriber-only episodes, and our monthly reading clubs, join us at patreon.com slash bungacast. OK Bunga, The Problem of Generations, is back with another episode next week. See you then.